Hi, everybody. Welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Detroit in the mid-1930s was a city abuzz over its unrivaled sports success. But meanwhile, a gun-loving baseball fan by the name of Dayton Dean became ensnared in the deadly Black Legion. This clan-like group murdered enemies, flogged associates, and contemplated armed rebellion. Terror in the City of Champions, the new book by author Tom Stanton, opens with the arrival of Mickey Cochran, a baseball star who roused the Great Depression's hardest-hit city by leading the Tigers to the 34 pennant and then to its first championship the following year. The Lions and Red Wings followed in baseball and hockey, and all the while, Joe Lewis chased boxing's heavyweight crown. Amid such glory, the Legion's dreadful toll grew unchecked and Dayton Dean's involvement deepened as heroic Mickey Cochran's reputation rose. But that ballplayer had his own demons. Award-winning author Tom Stanton weaves this stunning tale of history, crime, and sports. The book features iconic athletes, sanctimonious criminals, scheming industrial titans, a bigoted radio priest, J. Edgar Hoover, and future president Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan. It is definitely a rollicking true story set at the confluence of hard luck, hope, victory, and violence. I began my interview with author Tom Stanton by asking him why he combined all of these tales from the 1930s, the Tigers, the Red Wings, the Lions, and this deadly Black Legion organization. Oh, it's just, uh, it's the contrast of the lightness and the darkness happening at the same time. And, you know, everybody, of course, uh, knows of the the Tigers winning that first world championship back in the in '35, but it was a big lead up in 1934 as well. And the city was going crazy, but meanwhile, there's this nefarious plague spreading undetected throughout the city in the form of the Black Legion, a secret society. I just love the idea of blending these two stories and uh, and probing the overlap as well. I'm born and raised in Detroit. I've lived here my whole life. Am I just a hugely ignorant person? I've never heard of the Black Legion until your book. Is 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 am I an anomaly? Do most people know about the Black Legion or has this kind of been lost to Detroit history? It has been lost. There are some who know, not many though. If people know of a gang from the thirties, it's usually the purple yeah, gang. Yeah, the purple gang, sure. The, the Jewish rum runners. But yes. uh, these guys weren't in it for profit. They were a, a clan like organization, more violent and uh, no, they've been forgotten. One of the amazing things when you go back in history, to me personally, is how some stories rise up and we celebrate them or at least romanticize them decades on. Others disappear. But in its time, as it was, when it was exposed, Black Legion created this hysteria that spread across the nation. Uh, you know, the FBI directors getting inundated with people concerned about their neighbors possibly belonging. And I think it was the fact that it was a secret society. That, uh, that your husband might have belonged, that your son might belong, uh, and that you didn't know about it, that just frightened people. And, uh, but it disappeared. It dissipated over the decades, and uh, you're not alone. Uh, most mm. people haven't heard of the Black Legion. 
When did it form? Was it formed in, in Detroit, in Michigan? What, what's the time frame here? You know, actually, it was earlier in the 1920s in Ohio, and it kind of faded out. It was, just kind of, it was based in the small town, and there was a guy in Lima, Ohio, some years later, in the early 30s, who resurrected it, and it started to spread. It had tens of thousands of members in three states, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan, and it flourished in Detroit, where in addition to the usual biases against blacks, Jews, Catholics, on and on, they were also fighting, they were co-opted into the fight against unions in the Detroit wow. factory. So at the height of the Depression, lots of these black legionnaires had jobs, uh, these, these Protestant white guys in the factories. And uh, they were heavily involved in the Rouge plant, for example, where it was estimated that half of the departments were controlled by the, the Black Legion. And, of course, Rouge was headquarters for Harry Bennett, the notorious uh, uh, right-hand man of Henry uh, Ford. Yes, yes, a notorious anti-union uh, person. So were members of the Black Legion, were any of them also members of the Ku Klux Klan? These were completely distinct organizations? You know, a lot of them came from the Klan. Uh, and by the end of the 20s, even though the Klan still existed, it, it was fading a bit uh, and certainly fading geographically. And so uh, when uh, Bert Effinger, the supposed leader in Lima, Ohio. A lot of people think were actually, that he was actually a puppet for other folks. Um, was uh, expanding the organization. He went back to the Klan files and started drawing in his connections in the Klan. And so there was overlap. When it was finally exposed, though, the Klan was distancing itself and urging a national investigation into the, uh, the Black Legion. So they kind of opposed each other in some ways, but there was overlap. Right at the beginning of the book, you inter- introduce us to uh, Deaton Dean of the Black Legion. And uh, on the bright side and on the positive side, Mickey Cochran of the Detroit Tigers. T- tell us about uh, these two folks. Why did you begin the book this way? Oh, yeah. Uh, they're such uh, integral characters and both so interesting. Mickey Cochran, if he were playing today, if he were alive today, I have no doubt he would be on mood-altering medications. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that sincerely. He was... Extreme emotional highs, extreme lows to the point where, uh, you know, months after they win the World Series, he's going to suffer a nervous breakdown right mm. in the middle of the season, mm. be shipped off for a month, uh, you know, to Wyoming, I believe it was. Uh, and But he's such a colorful character. He comes into town. He's this all-star catcher, uh, and he's going to manage the team, and he inspires these young guys. I mean, just lights a fire under this team. And they go from mediocre in one year to the World Series in 34 and then win it the next year in 35. And the whole city is just crazy about the, the Tigers. And, and they're crazy about Mickey Cochran and some of the other names, of course, we know from that era, Hank, young Hank Greenberg and the veteran Charlie Geringer and, and the guy who becomes a national figure, Schoolboy Rowe, who we've kind of forgotten, but there's a wonderful love story associated with Schoolboy oh, Rowe. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so, you know, that's mostly the bright side of the story, as well as Joe Lewis and the and the Red Wings and the Lions winning uh, during the same time. But Dayton Dean is this uh, wonderful figure as well with the darker side. Mm-hmm. He's this guy who has a mundane life, wrapping pipes at the Mistersky Power Plant uh, near Fort Wayne. And... Uh, you know, he gets inducted into the Black Legion. And a lot of times when uh, these folks who were inducted didn't know that they were about to be inducted. A friend would ask you to a barbecue or a card game or a drinking party. And, uh, of course, you would have to be a white male Protestant, you know, to 
get this invitation, and you'd end up maybe in a field or in a Masonic temple room or in a basement of a church. And at some point in the evening, the lights might go out, and you would notice that you're surrounded by these guys in black hoods and gowns with who are heavily armed, telling you that you know too much and you are about to be inducted into the Black Legion. And so guys would fall into it that way. Dayton Dean, uh, you know, he was excited when he heard this. It, it was like a it was like a movie to him. It was like a radio series. It was an adventure. Uh, you know, such a contrast from his day-to-day life. And so he absorbed it, and he rises quickly through the Black Legion to be part of the Death Squad. It was estimated that the Legion killed in southeastern Michigan about 50 uh, people. The estimate came from a, a state police captain back in the day. There were only convictions Based on two of those murders. Only two. Yeah, only two. And what were those two murders? What were yeah, the convictions on? Well, the one that it, it led to the exposure of the Black Legion was uh, the killing of a WPA worker in Detroit, a guy named Charlie Poole. The one that happened, uh, the other one that people were convicted of was just a case of uh, racial hatred. And it happened mm. not too far from Ann Arbor, actually, in Pinckney. And it happened on the very same day that Jesse Owens set four world uh, track records in Ann Arbor. And so if you were of the progressive mind and you're looking for reasons to feel encouraged early in the day, you might be, th- you know, look at the crowd at Ferry Field and think and, and see white folks rooting for yeah. this black athlete and mm-hmm. think, hey, maybe we're turning a, a corner here. And then just hours later that night, you have some black legionnaires who want to know what it feels like to kill a black man. That was the whole motivation for the death of Silas Coleman, who was uh, lured up to Rush Lake and taken out to the Ford Mill Pond, released and hunted down and killed. And at the time, uh, this is 1935, uh, people aren't aware of the Black Legion other than those who belong, and you don't talk about it under threat of death. And so that death, uh, that killing, that murder was not associated with anybody other than, you know, just an unexplained killing. It's not till May of 36, the Charlie Poole killing, that people learn that there's a Black Legion and that, uh, you know, that this horrific uh, organization has been doing evil things, you know, everything ranging from uh, mere beatings of people for a variety of reasons to assassination plots against a, uh, a leftist attorney, a local publisher, the mayor of a suburb, mm. to grander plots of uh, possibly poisoning Jewish neighborhoods by injecting typhoid germs into cheese and milk deliveries. It's just a whole range of things they were involved in. Mm. How, how long was was the Black Legion active? When, when did they fade away and, when, and what caused their demise? Yeah, well, once they were exposed, once the uh, the pool murder happened, uh, it got investigated uh because uh, Poole wasn't uh, a union organizer, there were folks who would end up dead with uh, union apps t- uh, tucked under them that had been killed by the Legion. But police uh, at that stage tended to side with the, the factories, just didn't bother to investigate. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of Legion deaths that were faked suicides. And, uh, you know, so they got away with those. But in, in the case of Charlie Poole, um, police investigated it at first because he looked kind of like a gangster and there had been a big bank robbery recently and so they sent the fingerprints off and the investigation starts and it just kind of unfolds and and Dayton Dean becomes a big part of the investigation and eventually he he, he talks mm. and so any crimes he was associated with people tended to get convicted um, 
in others there was a cover-up. And one of the things I expose in the book is uh, that in addition to a variety of public officials who were members and were using it uh, to get votes and may or may not have known of the murders taking place in their name, there was the police commissioner in Detroit who was a member, uh, which I, I discovered. Police commissioner. A police commissioner, yeah, Heinrich Pickert. Wow, that's corruption. It wow, is, yeah. wow. Let's return to the bright side and talk about <laughs> the Detroit Tigers in, in the 1930s. So this was the first World Series victory for the Tigers ever in their history in 1935. But they were in the World Series the year before, correct? And correct. and when before that? This was 35 wasn't the first time in the no, World Series no. for the Tigers, not at all. No, you go back to Ty Cobb's years. There are three in a row there, 1907, 08, and 09. But they never won the World they Series with Ty Cobb and on Cobb the team. Was, Cobb was a young man then, and but they just did not make it uh, to the to that final victory, and so there'd been a long dry spell since they'd been in the series back in that day. Of course, you you didn't have all these divisions. It was American League versus National League, and that was the playoffs. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, the, no wild card no, teams, no. <laughs> none of that none stuff whatsoever. Uh, and so they, uh, you know, thirty by thirty three, height of the depression, forty percent unemployment in Detroit. Uh, attendance has plummeted at the Tiger games to like 4,000 per game. And so the team is hurting, and that's why Cochran is brought in. First, they were going to bring in Babe Ruth to be the manager, mm. but that didn't work out. And so Cochran comes in and resurrects this team, and really nobody was expecting him to get to the World Series in that first year. But he, he takes them there, and the city's going crazy, and then they lose disappointingly against the St. Louis Cardinals and Dizzy Dean. And there's nearly a a riot on the field when it happens. Uh, just uh, the city is so dejected because their emotions had gone so high. And then the next year they, they do it and uh, they, they win it all. And they beat and the Chicago Cubs. In they do. Right? Yes. What, was the final game where? Was it here in Chicago? Uh, yeah, no, it was here in Detroit. And uh, the city, of course, uh, goes crazy. The, uh, the the streets, it's just like anything we hadn't seen. Maybe Armistice Day. Uh, wow. it's, it's just, you know, confetti you know, streaming down from the skies, from the, the skyscrapers, which had just been built in the 20s mm. as Detroit had uh, was blossoming and uh, becoming the fourth largest uh, city in the, in the country by 1930. In the title of your book, Terror in the City of Champions. So we have champions that are not just the Tigers in the 1930s. This is just such a, a golden age for, for sports. Was there, has there been any other time in the history of Detroit sports where so many teams were winning at once, Tom? No, no, absolutely not. I used to hear this story from my uncles when I was a kid, and I was rooting for my Lions, Red Wings, and Pistons in the early 70s, Tigers. None of them were doing anything after the 68 World Series. Yeah. Uh, other than that, of course, the Lions winning is just, you know, never happened in my lifetime. But <laughs> here these uncles would be talking about the Tigers winning, the Lions winning a month later, the Red Wings winning within this eight-month period, all of them winning their first national titles as Joe Lewis is undefeated and the uncrowned champion of boxing, uncrowned, of course, because he's black and hadn't been given the shot yet. Uh, but it just seemed like such a spectacular time. And it, uh, it's not happened since then in terms of those three championships happening within one season in one city. It's fascinating to, to read your writing about uh, professional football and the Detroit Lions. Man, football, professional football is so <laughs> mega popular now. But back in the 1930s, it was not very, it wasn't like that at all. Tell us more about the, the, the state of professional football in the 30s and the state of the Lions. Yeah, well, the, it, college football was much 
much bigger. Wait, and it, it's it, huge now, obviously. It is, it is, of course, it is. it's gigantic now. But, but no, no Super Bowl, of course, which the Super Bowl won't come around for decades later. But uh, the Lions in their championship season, their home field is the University of Detroit football field. You know, you have to used to have a football not team as well. Stadium, it's not, not Brick stadium, stadium for a couple of years yet. Wow. But when they win that first championship, they win it at. University of Detroit Stadium, and What's I, the, you know, it's like 12,000. 12, 12, and it wasn't 000. even full most of the time when the Lions were playing. And their big name was Dutch Clark. Uh, I mean, their manager had the, the coach had the same last name, but not related, Potsy Clark. And those were the two big names associated with Detroit Lions football. And, uh, you know, they. They played some of those names that you've heard of, Red Grange, you know, and mm. you know some mm. of those iconic players now. Uh, but it was, you know, the debate back then was, would the NFL championship team defeat the top team in college football? You know, which one was better, you know? Uh, and so, I mean, you wouldn't even think in those terms now. Oh, but, really? Uh, but back in the day, it was, uh, it, it, you know, professional football was just a shade of what it is now. And what was the state of professional hockey? I mean, of course, it's 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 always been in the shadow of baseball and and football. But was hockey quite popular back oh, in the thirties? Yeah, certainly in Detroit, it was, uh, and it was very we're much one a, of the six original teams, right? right? Yeah. You know, it's it's a very regional sport. Less so now, but especially then. And as they do now, the Wings would draw from Ontario. A lot of their fans were in Windsor and beyond, mm-hmm. and the, the Wings were bigger in Detroit. In that period, much bit much bigger than the Detroit Lions were. Huh. They were the second most popular team in Detroit. And the Tigers we, being first. First, and where did the Wings play in the thirties? Yeah, uh, they, at Olympia. They, Olympia was there. Yeah, it was. So it, when Olympia was that had been when built, built in the twenties. For yeah. hockey, for the Red Wings? Uh, for another version. It was, they weren't the Red Wings oh, back okay. in that day. I don't remember if they were the Falcons or the Panthers. A couple different sure. teams preceded them, and uh, and so Olympia was was there in the early days of Olympia. And so they won the, you know, that winning season, their home games took place at Olympia. Tom, you've done an ex- extraordinary amount of research uh, on this book. There are details, and I'm a, you know, I'm like I mentioned, a pretty big <laughs> Tigers fan, and just chapter after chapter of just astonishing revelations. How much time did you spend working on this book? And was there one particular place that you just found details about the city in the 30s that was just a particular revelation for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, I spent a lot of time in archives and newspaper files, you know, reading thousands of pieces, going back to court documents, uh, transcripts. Uh, Probably the most helpful uh, thing I did was uh, through Freedom of Information Act got the FBI files related mm. to the Black Legion, 900 plus pages, Michigan State Police files, uh, and so there was a lot of information in there and a lot of interesting things that uh, that came as a result of that. I've been working, oh, devoting a lot of time within the last two years prior to publication on this, but actually I'd been toying with this idea for more than a decade. And did some initial research, you know, almost a decade ago, and went on to other book projects. This is my seventh book, and um, eventually, this one just kept nagging at me. I just had to come back to it. It was a story that I just felt needed to be told. I didn't want it just to disappear into the dust of history. Tell us about some of your other books. Many of these focusing on baseball. What? Why? Where? Where does your love of this sport come from? Yeah, from my childhood. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. like. Uh, 
good chunk of uh, journalists, I think. Uh, we are uh, failed athletes who think we're going <laughs> to pursue uh, sports writing as as the alternative to not playing uh, professionally. There we I go. started out that way, but ended up uh, really enjoying journalism and headed off in that. But probably my best known books prior to this one were the uh, Tiger Stadium memoir, the final season where I spent the last year at, at that old ballpark and uh, Tie in the Babe, which was about the relationship between two iconic ballplayers. And uh, being besides, you know, the, the radio guy here in Southeast Michigan for three decades, I, I'm <laughs> I'm still completely devoted to to print and to newspapers, do a little writing myself. And you got to talk about this iffy, the dopester who you <laughs> profile in your book, who who was really a big thorn in the side of a lot of people, including Mickey Cochran of the Tigers. Yeah, well, iffy the dopester was a pseudonym for the editor, the main editor of the Free Press, the Malcolm f- Bengay, who in his earlier days had been a baseball beat reporter. And he was running the, the news and the free press had their battle going. The Detroit Times, William Randolph Hearst's paper, was a part of that battle too. So you had the th- three daily papers and the news had uh, a legendary baseball writer, H.G. Salzinger, who was just beating the free press continually. And and so Malcolm Bengay was trying to hire some old sports reporter to who would have the history to report on the great traditions in Detroit baseball when the Tigers are taking off in 34. People are hungering for, for more coverage, and he can't find anybody to do it. And so he takes on this persona of Iffy the Dopester, not identifying himself. And Iffy's this old guy who obviously knows his baseball from decades past. And uh, he becomes very opinionated because in the, after the Tigers win the World Series, fulfilling the life dream of owner Frank Navin, Navin dies That's just weeks later. Weeks later, that yeah. same year in 35. And the other owner, Walter Briggs, the legendary industrialist, Different figure, different personality, uh, more hard-nosed even than the Naven, takes over the team, and uh, it's a different style. And the manager, Mickey Cochran, uh, takes on a greater role as vice president. He's not only the catcher and manager, but he's the vice president now involved in negotiations. And there is this harsh negotiation taking place with Hank Greenberg, where the Tigers are just playing hardball in a way that Naven never would have and uh, a lot of stress on Mickey Cochran. And Iffy the Dopester goes from this kind of this nostalgic old uh, old timer curmudgeonly to this guy who's ripping into Cochran and the Tigers and, and hammering them for their lousy handling of this situation. And it, the tone changed, but uh, occasionally the free press still resurrects Iffy. Yes, they do. They do. You got to mention more too. A lot of people may be surprised to hear that there was a third and very significant newspaper in Detroit dur- during this time period, the Detroit Times. Did they have a good sports uh, oh, they did. section? What was their main focus in that yeah, newspaper? Yeah. Well, uh, sports and police. You know, they were a l- they were. It was a Hearst paper, so they were a little more scandal-oriented than the other Detroit papers, but they had a devout readership, uh, and it's interesting going back in time and and looking at the different coverage, but police coverage often drove it, and a lot of it was sensational, Uh. Uh, you know, what you would expect, you know, kind of uh, focusing on the... uh, you know, the more intriguing sides, uh, I guess is a poor word uh, to describe it, of, uh, you know, murders and, and uh, 
in some horrific crimes. Mm. Any advice from all the research you've done into into uh, the life of Mickey Cochran? That if you could sit down with Brad Osmus today as we <laughs> head into the the final couple months of the regular season, any any sage advice you might uh, give him uh, th- these days? Tigers are doing pretty good finally now. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, Cochran was known for never. His never die, never give up. Most competitive man in the game, according to Ty Cobb. According to Ty who Cobb. Who was himself a pretty competitive guy. And he was just intense, uh, probably over the top intense. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, no, I, I don't know what to advise Brad Osmus. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, Ty. Can you tell us about your next project? You know, yeah, I'm not really sure, but I'm uh, going to be heading off to New York in September to uh, work on a, I believe it's, uh, I'm going to head off onto a personal project related to an uncle who tried to make me a writer by giving me for decades, not a couple of his old books, but dozens every year, every Christmas when I was a kid, giving me dozens of these novels that he loved. And I never, never read them uh, stubbornly as a kid. And now in middle age, I've gone back to them and and I'm mining the wisdom and, and kind of exploring that relationship. So I think that's where I'm heading, though I'm tempted to do something on the Purple Gang, and I also have a couple baseball projects in mind. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with author Tom Stanton about his book, Terror in the City of Champions, Murder, Baseball, and the Secret Society that Shocked Depression-Era Detroit. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Go get him, tiger. Rawr. We're all behind our baseball team. Go get em, tiger. World Series bound and picking up steam.